our brother Jim Allen here. We're glad to have our brother with us. And he's going to read in Revelation chapter 19 and the subject, the Supper of the Lamb and the Great Supper. So I trust that our brother will be helped and that it will be a profitable Bible reading. We want our brethren from the floor to feel free to, to give all the help that they can. Especially, we like to encourage our brethren to, we just don't want it to be what we call a preacher's Bible reading. <laughs> but uh, we would like the brethren from the floor to come up uh, and, and give us uh, as much help, uh, and, uh, whether it be questions or whether it be contributions. Now, that's all I want to say. We hand the meeting over to our brother, Alan. Now, as you know, our portion is Revelation chapter 19. Shall we read the passage, please? Revelation 19, verse 1. And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven say, Alleluia. Salvation and glory, and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Again they said, Hallelujah, and their smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God, that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. The voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto, he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now verse 11, the central verse of the chapter. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written, that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. 
And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and, and, and the flesh of all men, both free, bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse, against his army. The beast was taken, with him the false prophet, that wrought miracles before him, which he deceived, with which he deceived them that received the mark of, had received the mark of the beast, them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. God will bless the reading of his word in public. I have a very heavy task. I have to put this passage into its context, the context of the book in which it sits. Again, I have to put this passage into the chronology of the timetable that God is working to. Those two things, in these few minutes, in a few sentences. This passage is taken from a book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Its source is God. God gave it to him. Its subject is Jesus Christ. That is, he is the subject of the book. You're not surprised then, when you turn to its pages, to find that it centers on him. Prologue, the first eight verses, chapter 1. Then you move to vision number one. Vision number one, Christ in the midst of the churches. And that runs to end of chapter three. Then you come to vision number two. And that is Christ, not in the churches, but in the cosmos. The background is chapter four and five. And Christ is not seen as priest judge in the midst of the lampstand but he's seen as a lamb taking the book title deeds of earth from the hand of a throne set and that commences the tribulation period as we'll see the third vision is the one that we'll be particularly interested in as we open this Bible reading and that is number three it's Christ in conquest Christ in the churches, first two chapters. Christ in the cosmos runs from chapter 6. Chapter 4 opens the tribulation in chapter 6 and runs to verse 10 
of our chapter. In other words, the first ten verses of this chapter belong to the third vision. We'll discuss that in a moment. And they close that vision of Christ in the cosmos. That's because the seven scenes have been opened, the seven trumpets have been blown, the seven bowls have been poured, and the last bowl is the final blow, the last plague, at the end of chapter 16. Chapter 17, 18, and down to verse 10 of our chapter is, an append- is a parenthesis, the final parenthesis. And we are introducing that in the first ten verses of our chapter. You come to the last vision, vision number four. Vision number three, first, is Christ in conquest as he comes back to earth. That brings us to verse 11 of our chapter, when it's Christ returning to earth. And that runs on to the end of our brother's Bible reading this evening, chapter 20, where it's the end of earth history. These two chapters bring us to the end of earth's history as we know it. Then we are moving into the final vision. Not Christ in the churches, Christ in the cosmos, but Christ in conquest, yes, but Christ in consummation. You're moving to where Christ, through eternity, still alive, but in association with God, the throne of God and the Lamb. Now, you recognize from what I've said, our chapter has a significant division at verse number 11. The first ten verses conclude Christ in the cosmos. The next ten verses, after verse 11, open Christ in conquest. In chapter 4 and verse 1, a door is opened in heaven. John is taken in. Here, at the close of, this, of, of, of the vision, heaven is open. First one, John went in. This one, Christ comes out. Here is the crisis, the consummation, the culmination of prophetic word, of the program of heaven. It's when the Christ, once rejected, comes back to earth. My, what a tremendous moment. I hope it thrills our soul. As we see the various pictures, here, because of the nature of the book, he's seen as the victor, the conqueror. He's riding on the the symbol of conquest, the white horse. He's coming forth, indeed, to claim his kingdom and his crown. But we will notice when we deal with this in discussion, this is the culminating crisis on earth. We look at that for a moment. Why? Because the dragon has used his princes, the beast and the false prophet, to gather armies from all of earth, right round Jerusalem, and they're gazing up And they're going to resist the coming of Christ from the glory. That's Armageddon. 
and I will be arguing for the case that Armageddon is Jerusalem. The mountain where the troops gathered is Jerusalem. And in that focal point of art, world attention is centered there, and it's to there Christ comes. You will think of Psalm number 2. I believe Psalm number 2 sets the scene. Why do the nations tumultuously assemble and the peoples meditate the vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. The heavens shall laugh. What a terrible sound. That echo of derision. Because Christ is coming as he does. And he comes back. Zechariah will tell us where he comes to. Tell us that the nations are gathered around Jerusalem. And he will tell us, The Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations. And his feet shall stand on Mount of Olives. That's where he's coming to. At this moment. That's behind the picture that we have. Matthew 24. Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great glory. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 And you have the Lord Jesus shall be revealed in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God. The pictures fit together. At this climactic moment that's before us in verse number 11. I've left it there except to say this. The remaining part of our chapter, from verse 11, is set before us in three paragraphs. The arrival of the sovereign, verses 11 to 16. And then the announcement of the supper. By that angel standing, outlined against, I submit, a darkened sun. And he sends the summons to the fowls of earth, to the supper of great God. What a dreadful scene. And the last scene is the action of the sword. When that sword in the Saviour's mouth, Armageddon, has no sound of missile strikes, no sound aeroplane engines, the silence of a sword from the mouth of Christ, and millions die. That's the picture. From verse 11 to the end of the passage. Coming back to the first ten verses, you recognize that in the first section, down to verse number, end of verse number five, you have what we sometimes call the Hallelujah Chorus. The Hallelujah Chorus, four times, the word Hallelujah, echoes in your New Testament, 24 times in the Psalm. Four times here at this particular point. Why does that hallelujah rise? Well, we're told after these things. Ten times you get that expression in the book of the Revelation. After these things, what's the things that have happened? Well, you look back to chapter 18 and into chapter 17, if you like. And written across those two chapters is Babylon. The enemy of heaven, from its inception, 
under Nimrod, the rebel. And down the history, Babylon has been a place where the power of Satan has been demonstrated. And it comes forth in the last days. As in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, there's two sides to it. There was a city and a town. But in, in the Revelation, it comes forth with the name mystery on one picture. Chapter 17. Mystery. Babylon the Great. I will be insisting that that's the religious heritage of Babylon that stands forth in all clarity in the Roman Catholic Church. And that is destroyed, I submit, at the midpoint of the tribulation. And then, the city. The commerce of earth, under the control of the beast, goes back to an ancient site. And that's chapter 80. You have Babylon mentioned in chapter 14, I submit, explained in chapter 17. You get at the end of chapter 16. Cities of the nations fell. That's in the seventh bowl. That's the last great earthquake to ripple round earth. The cities of the nations fell. A great Babylon came up with remembrance before God. And you can almost hear the cry of that city. And the wail from the from the monarchs, from the merchants, from the mariners, the crash of battle. That's the last trace. It's gone now. Now you turn from earth. Earth was its will in chapter 18. Now heaven was its worship. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Four times. Three times looking back. Once looking on, first time it speaks of salvation. Did you notice that? Hallelujah. Salvation, glory, and power. The third one is left out in, in most manuscripts. So you have salvation. That's Phil as a heart. That's heaven. At the same time on earth, a great multitude will be raising their voices. Go back to chapter 7. Verse 9. Same expression. On earth, that multitude without a number is raising their voice. They've come through the tribulation. They're standing on Mount Zion. And from earth, there come a mighty cry. Salvation. Heaven answered. Salvation. A mighty company in heaven. And then not only salvation because of, not only hallelujah because of salvation the second hallelujah unfolds the severity of our God there's Baba it has earned it it has deserved it God true and righteous in his judgment has dealt with it and heaven rejoices the third one deals with the sovereignty of God and you have four and twenty elders last time you read of them I've submitted earlier four and twenty elders speak of the church in priestly capacity during this period now this is the last time 
You read it. And the four living ones. And this is the last time you read of them. And they join. Maybe the four living ones say, Amen. And the four and twenty elders say, Hallelujah. It rises before God. Those look back to the past. Verse 6, I submit, we'll look on to the future. And you get the next hallelujah in the following verse. A voice came out of the throne, we can discuss who this is, saying, praise our God. Keep on praising our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear, both small and great. Keep up that note of praise. Heaven is active. Salvation is there. The sentence is there, executed on Babylon. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. The same words, chapter, verse 1. And how does it sound like? As the voice of a great multitude. The murmuring. But there's more than that. As the, as the voice of many waters, cascading water, the tones rise, murmur. That torrent of water. And then the crash of mighty thunderings. It's echoing round the universe. As the triumph of heaven is accepted and acclaimed. But they're not only looking to the past. They're looking to the future. The four points you to that. What's to happen now? Four. Here, here you have it. The marriage of the Lamb is come. The time has come for Christ to take his bride. Not only to take his bride, he's to take the throne. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. He's just about to take the throne. But first, in heaven, the marriage ceremony. He takes his bride. And you get that interjection. His wife has made herself ready. And I submit that will be the judgment seat. And the next little verse is parenthetically explaining what is meant. For her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousnesses of saints. That garment that the bride has woven in her sojourn waiting on earth. Then to be taken home. The judgment seat of Christ. And that which comes from it. To be worn eternally. Wearing her wedding dress. In the presence of her groom. And then the intersection, interjection. He says unto me, right. Almost seems to me as if John had been so absorbed in what he was being shown. He forgot about the writing. Three times it happens in the book. Wake up, John. Get this done. This is so bad. Blessed are they. This is the, the number four. Benediction of heaven. There's seven altogether. And all the others are blessings on earth. I think this is blessing on earth too. Blessed are they that are called to the marriage supper. You have that. The marriage supper of the Lamb. I'd be suggesting, I'm not going to suggest that all my brethren will agree with me, 
They possibly will not. But I believe it's on earth. When Christ brings back his bride and the introduction of the millennium is the marriage supper and from earth, those who are bitten, those saved in the tribulation, those who respond to the gospel call, those are the guests bidden. His other guests. He'll bring with him the heavenly guests. But this is on earth. And the blessing is for those who respond to the message of the gospel in the tribulation. Is there anyone that John falls at his feet? He's ready to worship the angel because he's been so stirred. The angel says, no. Don't worship me. Worship God. That's to whom worship the Lord. My brethren, as we consider this, I trust our heart will rise as we see what God will do through the person of His Son and the place that He filled with us and for us throughout eternal ages. May the Lord help us as we look into the passage. Now, I have given you the outline and I trust my brethren will feel free to come in and if there's any general observations before we begin in detail, now is the time, please, to bring them forth as we begin at verse 1 in a few minutes. You mentioned the contrast between what we have here at the beginning of chapter 19 with what we have in chapter 18. There's the destruction of Babylon, the great commercial system of Babylon, and we discover that when that happens on earth, there's tremendous mourning. Now, I noted down what you spoke about. You spoke about the monarchs and the merchants and the mariners. That's right. Would it be all right to call them maybe the sovereigns, the salesmen and the sailors? Well, that amount to the same thing. As long as you keep the alliteration. (laughs) So, they're mourning. But in contrast to the mourning on earth at the fall of Babylon, there is great rejoicing in heaven. And they say, Hallelujah. Thank you. Are all my brethren agreed that this is coming to the very close of the tribulation period? It's interesting, isn't it, that what we have here is the sound of it rather than the vision of it that strikes John initially. You can hear that, he says in verse 1 and also in verse 6, I heard. So that's reaching his ear. Yes. He's already been occupied with the vision. Just in context, in connection with that, isn't there a, a very eerie silence at the end of chapter 18? That's right. No more musicians, what does mm-hmm. it say, verse, mm-hmm. verse 22. No more harpers, musicians, pipers, trumpeters shall be heard in thee. It all falls quiet. That's right. And then out of that eerie silence of stealth, there erupts this massive outburst of praise. When you think of these seven years that have preceded this, for Christ in the cosmos, from chapter 4 to actually the end of chapter 18, and in that period, judgment after judgment has burst upon earth, and terrible judgments have fallen. Now the last one is over, and as our brother said, there's almost that silence as the wailing stop, and in heaven, joy. That's correct. Our brother uh, Curry if you heard him, uh, was asking about does the record of Revelation go back at any time? Well, it does. There are four parentheses in the book. 
you get those parentheses at certain intervals. For example, between the, the sixth scene and the seventh scene, there's a parenthesis. One chapter, chapter seven. That talks about people. The people going into the tribulation. And the tribulation was paused before it started. You see, you all know that the end of the church age is the catching away of the church. Christ coming back to the end. So the church is not seen from chapter 4. Right till you come right through the book. It's not heard of again until you come to the last section, Christ in the epilogue. The last 16 verses. And there, there's a message to the churches. But this section is not seen. So there's a pause in chapter 7 to go back and look at people. There's another parenthesis between the 6th and 7th trumpet. And that includes chapter 10 into chapter 11. That deals with places that are going to be affected. Birth and Jerusalem. Then you have between the 7th trumpet and the bowls. There's a pause. Along, you, you, you have between the 7th trumpet and the bowls. There's a pause from 12, 1 to chapter 14. And there you have certain purposes outlined and delineated. The purpose of Satan. That's where he comes onto the scene as the dragon. And then the production of his princes in chapter 13. The beast and the false prophet are appearing. One from the sea, the other from the land. This, these pauses fill in the background. And now we have come to the very end of that and chapter 19 and verse 11 on to the end shows us just exactly what consummates earth history. I was going to ask you, uh, Mr. Allen, there's a great awareness here at the beginning of this chapter uh, in heaven of events on earth. That's a point. Is that unique to this period of time covered by this section of prophecy? Or even today, we know that if a sinner gets saved, there's awareness of it in heaven. But there seems to be a very distinct awareness here, in heaven, of exactly what has been happening on earth. Is that, does that hold for all time, or is it particularly so during these tribulation periods? Brother Robin, you're asking me a very difficult question. Well, not, not, not for wrong intentions. I'm just wondering. I have thought there would be a consciousness of things happening. Yes. And at this particular period, the tribulation period particularly, mm-hmm. they'll be conscious because Michael, for example, stands up mm-hmm. at a particular mm-hmm. period, at a, an exact moment mm-hmm. that answers to the need of that moment in chapter 12. Yes. So I see no objection, maybe my brethren will help me uh, clarify this issue, yeah. but I see no objection to being heaven, heaven being aware of what's happening on earth. Yes. And especially at this time. I think that last sort of expression answers my question. I, yeah. I think even now heaven is aware, yeah. but it's going to be particularly so at this time because of the rebellion that will be taking place on earth. Yeah. It's evident from the likes of the experience of King Ahab and Jehoshaphat, there was an angelic convention, if you want to call it that, a committee meeting to discuss affairs that were taking place on earth. So it would appear that there is knowledge among the angelic beings at least of yeah. what is transpiring on earth. Would you rather agree? Yeah, and they are great actors mm-hmm. in the, every scene that's in the book. Yeah. So one would be left to conclude that they certainly understood divine purpose 
they certainly understood the time for divine purpose being fulfilled had come. And I think it would be unlikely then that the four and twenty elders would not share in that knowledge. In connection with that death that our brother mentioned earlier, uh, I, I, I think that the, the joyful news that was, uh, let me put it like that the news of salvation that will rejoice the heart of the saints I do, I've draw some little bit of caution here with how much they know about what happens uh, on earth in detail Sir Alan, brother, I was going to suggest and emphasize what you were mentioning already at the beginning of this chapter from verses 1 to 10 we have the gladness of heaven. We have the glory of the bridegroom. It's usually the opposite at weddings on earth. We sing, here comes the bride, but it's the bridegroom that's emphasized here. Yes, right. Then we have the garments of the saints, and we have the guests that are at the banquet. I think that sums up the, the first ten verses of the chapter. Yes, thank and you very the four, much. The four hallelujahs that we have yes. is salvation and severity and supremacy and sovereignty. That's right. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. Brother, Brother Nisbet? I'm told the mic may not be working, <coughs> so I am to speak up. That's a strange exercise for me. When you say heaven having knowledge of events on earth, is your reference to the angelic aspect of things rather than to the redeemed that have already reached the eternal glory for instance the dead know nothing more I had always thought that the saints that have departed from Lurgan and from all over the world are not conscious of what's happening in the world at the present time now could you clarify that do you think that all the saints in heaven have some degree of conscious knowledge of what's happening down here. For instance, would they know this at the day of the first Bible reading at Lurgan Conference? Won't they have their memories? Your memory's not done away with. They'd have all the memories. Would, would they be conscious, for instance, that Brother Jim Allen has the first Bible reading? Well, as I, say, I was careful of what I said. I don't know how much detail they know. But I do believe that they're conscious of what's happening on earth, in general terms. You believe that the people of God already in heaven are deeply conscious of all the events that are taking place in this world. You're pushing my words beyond what I'm, I'm oh, saying. Well There's see. a general knowledge of events and from their memory and from what news is brought into heaven. They can't be in ignorance of what's happening yes. on earth. Yeah, but when you say they have a general knowledge, did they know about the volcanic ice? Did they know about the BP oil spill? Well, I can't answer that, Bill. <laughs> well, I would have difficulty believing that the saints in heaven would have knowledge of the events in this world that are giving so much concern and creating so many problems for believers here. I had thought they were at home, they were at rest, forever blessed, that nothing could ever enter their minds that would in any way distract from the blessedness of that celestial scene. Why should this detract from the blessedness of that celestial scene? They know that all is in the Lord's hand. And they're seeing things moving to a culmination and a climax that's programmed in Scripture. They're in tune with the purpose of God. And as the program develops, 
They see, I, under, I believe they'll understand the people of God are under pressure, are under persecution, and they'll be an association with heaven in waiting for the moment of his return. Could I maybe move on from there then? But still, still in verse 1, right. uh, they're saying salvation and glory, and you indicated that honour probably is omitted from most manuscripts. Salvation, glory, honour and power unto the Lord our God. Now this is exactly what the religious harlot had taken to herself in chapter 17. Yeah. Honour and glory. I sit a queen and she's decked, you know, and, and so on. But they're saying in heaven, these things belong exclusively to the divine and not to any religious system here on earth. Exactly. That's right. And you get, salvation speaks of that realised that God has planned for his people. And then you have the second word, glory. It's the revelation of himself in the salvation of his own. And that power that has brought redemption to so many on earth. Remember this section started with the song of the deep. And it comes through now to the song of the redeemed uh, uh, in heaven, who know, who are aware of what has happened. The name that's used for uh, our God in this, in this scene is not the one that we, make, we expect in uh, the Gospels or in the epistles of, of Paul. He's called the Lord our God. Yeah. It might be helpful here to say something about why that occurs so often in a book like Revelation. Well, he's linking back with Jehovah of old. And I think that's the weight of when he uses the word Lord. Lord God omnipotent. Mm-hmm. It's in Jehovah who's working out the purposes mm-hmm. of, the, of, of God. And the omnipotent occurs nine, ta- omnipotent occurs nine times mm-hmm. in the book. It's the omnipotent one. There's no one able to stand against his power. So we're moving on now to verse number judgments. I think that looks back to salvation. But the, the next expression uh, explains uh, the, the severity of those right judgments. For the, uh, he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth. This was the very char- character of Babel uh, throughout time. She corrupted mankind. She corrupted Balance. She corrupted Israel. Uh, she corrupted the church testimony and brought disaster. The word corrupted goes back to the, the moth eating the garment. The very fabric of what God designed was eaten away by Babylon. There's a twofold indictment of Babylon really here. First of all, in connection with the earth, she's corrupted the earth uh, in the ways you've discussed with us just now, Mr. Allen. But then, secondly, she persecuted the saints. And so true and righteous are his judgments because all the blood that she shed has now been avenged as a result of divine intervention. You can see that Babylon doesn't only go back to the church age because in the last verse of chapter 18 in her was found the blood of the prophet and of sin and of all that were slain upon the earth. She has had her finger in murder and persecution right down paganism, pagan rule then papal rule, and so on. It's all the same. Behind all is Babylon. Mm-hmm. Oh, David. <coughs> just, I know you're moving on. I was going to ask you just, without putting things into watertight compartments, would it be more or less correct to say that hallelujah is not really a term for this period? I mean, our present period. 
hallelujah is really a term for the period when God's judgments, the judgments of Jah, of Jehovah, will be manifested in the world. Well, I, I don't see any objection to that, but I don't see why we shouldn't join in in this age. Certainly the first, the first hallelujah of Scripture in Psalm 104, let the sinners be consumed out of the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless thou the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. His so first occurrence is to do with the destruction of evil. Yes, that's correct. And it also has to do, I think, with deliverance of God's people. Because the Hallel of Egypt is Psalm 113 to 118. The, the Psalms that present the praise of Jehovah because of his deliverance. Is that not the thought here? That the deliverance has been wrought. And this deliverance will include saints of all ages. Uh, the, the so I, I, I wouldn't like to confine it. To those periods. Uh, I thought it was particularly with Israel, but I can see you. The, uh, the first occurrence of John in the scriptures is Exodus 15. Yes. And the end of that great song, I will praise John. Hallelujah. The end of that song is the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Uh-huh. So that's very close to here. It's taking it up to this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the emphasis is on deliverance. Sure. Brother Alan, would the answer to our brother Nesbitt's question not be found in the two verses you're dealing with? Chapter 1, or sorry, verse 1, it's a heavenly company. They are in heaven. You have suggested that they are the tribulation saints. Perhaps even more than that. But the second verse tells us with regard to them that they are rejoicing and they are saying hallelujah because they understand that a vengeance has been taken on the great whore. In other words, as far as the happenings at this particular time are concerned, naturally they're very much aware because they're part of a procession that comes out of heaven. But they may not necessarily be aware of individual circumstances long gone. I'm glad you said that, Brother Jim. You're on my side. <laughs> I think you'd agree. Mr. Allen, do we take it that the events here in chapter 19 are seen in chronological order? Tell me what you mean. That they're just in the order as they are happening. And perhaps into chapter 20. And perhaps to chapter 21 and verse number 8. And that will be the eternal state. I think they are. In fact, from, from verse number 11 of this chapter, there are ten mentions of I saw. That takes us right into chapter 22. Yes, so, so it's, it's chronological. Yeah, we should see them in that light, I think. Yes, I do. Yeah. Of the word 
Hallelujah. Yet when we come to Revelation chapter 19, we'll find there four references to the word Hallelujah. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6. I think in using the word Hallelujah, Brother Billy Land said, it has to be used intelligently. We're living in days when there are those known as the Hallelujah bands. But we've got to be very careful. And I believe it does point back to Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And also the Brother Jim brought before us in Revelation chapter 19 verse 6. Here we have the answer. Hallelujah! For the Lord is coming. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. So I would just put out a practical uh, application here that we don't overuse the word. Hallelujah. Thank you. Now we must... Sorry. Brother Jim, you must move on, but there's something I want to clarify relative to knowledge of events in heaven. I had thought that here we have reached the end of the seven years we're at the very verge of the rapture and the saints in heaven are now made aware that the moment of rapture and the bema and the marriage of the Lamb is dawning. I had thought that this was peculiar to this company at this stage, not general during the course of all the centuries. Okay. Thanks, William. I will clarify. Please ask you... Concerning the great whore, now you've mentioned uh, pagan Rome and papal Rome, and we understand that. Does Islam come into this anywhere? That's not trying to be a different no, question. No, I don't think so. W- w- this, this is going back yeah. to Babylon, but I don't think Islam is directly in it right. at this point. Yet you acknowledge that in a geographical horseshoe, Israel is surrounded by Islam. Well, that's another topic. I, I understand that. I do understand that. But and what I'm asking you is this. Um, and maybe a very great threat to Christianity at the moment is Islam. So, without well, wanting to go into detail, in where does that fit into all In one way you can see uh, pagan religion. Yeah. Islam, you'd have to see it as a pagan religion, mm-hmm. really. But I don't think it comes into the picture uh, at this point. It, it'll come in later. Right, right well... When the armies that are gathered. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. But I, I think that. it goes but you're back. saying in relation it's to the Rome, great Rome is the last manifestation. Yes, okay. Full manifestation. Now, I know what she includes mm-hmm. is maybe not absolutely clear. Yeah. Uh, religious uh, departure mm-hmm. in paganism. Uh, whether some will include Islam in that, I, mm-hmm. I'm inclined to leave Islam out. Because the, 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 the Roman Catholicism is destroyed at the midpoint of the week. Mm-hmm. And it's Islam that moves in the last part of the week, I judge towards Jerusalem. But you're but taking sorry, me off uh, that's, No, I don't want to take you away. I'm just thinking, there'll be a lot of people here sitting thinking today about the rise of Islam and, and, and it is such a major issue in this world as well as in the Middle East. So, no, no, thank you, John. Well, uh, yes, thank you, Robin. But, but we'll develop that, I think, later. Uh, I still would like to see the whore linked with Babylon and manifest in Roman Catholicism. That would be my argument. Now, we are moving on, brother. As we move on, Mr. Allen, and, and I ask a question which would have reverence 
relevance for the part we're coming to too. The liberal thinkers of our world would deny of God the right to judge. They would quote back to us our own scriptures. They would tell us how we're to love our enemy and we're to deal kindly with those who despitefully use us. They would quote us words like uh, Proverbs 24, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, let thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. Now clearly our passage is about God judging evil, rampant evil, in our world as we see it and as it will develop. It might be helpful just to say something about God's right to judge. Well, uh, he has a right, absolute right, and true and righteous are his judges. And it includes not only salvation, it includes the actual exercise of judgment. And of course, Christ has been appointed as a judge. He is the one that fills every session of judgment sessions. He is the one that executes and you can take that right on to where we'll come to the great white throne. It goes to different areas, but there's in the chapter, true and righteous are his judgments, the righteousness of saints, in righteousness doth he judge and make war, hath avenged. The word avenged is the verb form of the word righteous, executed righteousness. So the passage nearly goes out of its way to indicate that God's not indiscriminate. Yeah. That's right. And then there is emphasis in verse 3 of the eternal character of the judgment. There's an inference of the eternal character of God's judgment. The smoke rose up forever and ever. And again, you get other phrases right through this section of the book of the Revelation. It's forever and it tormented day and night forever and ever. So not only is the judgment of God righteous judgment, it is eternal judgment, which again is another concept that the world discards today. And a voice came out of the throne saying Praise the Lord. Brother Jim has mentioned the parentheses in the book of Revelation. He said that he thought, I think he's wrong. I think there are five. I'll keep you right on that later Jim. <laughs> the one that I would introduce would be chapters 4 and 5 as a parenthesis. And what does that suggest? What our brother McEwen was asking about. Here is given to us in chapters 4 and 5 the reasons for and the authority of God's dealings with man in judgment from chapter 6 to chapter 19. So it comes between the letters to the seven churches as the Lord moves among them. And now we find that the authority that God has is more than ample to deal with rebellious man. I would take issue with your word parenthesis, Jim. It's not a parenthetic passage. It's a background scene. Because the scene comes into this picture at uh, this very chapter. You have verse 4. Four and twenty elders. They're around the throne. And the four living ones fell down and worshipped God. It's still the same scene. That's the scene that has been the background for all these chapters. And it's from that that Christ comes forth. Uh, when you come to verse 11. But brother, we must, I must move you very quickly. Voice came out of the throne. You can think of that as a voice of Christ or the voice of an angel delegated of heaven. Keep on praising our God. All ye his servants. Seventh and last time in the book. It's mentioned. Ye that fear him. And the, and the, the next word, uh, servants and is explanatory. I think it's just one company that is being addressed. Keep uh, all ye servants, uh, ye fear, fear both small and great, 
keep on praising him. And in answer to that, I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude. That's the same structure as verse number one. But this time, the chorus swells. A great multitude murmuring, voice of many waters, the thunder, and the voice of mighty thundering, the crashing of the, the thunder, and the cry is, Hallelujah. And the Lord our God reigneth. This is taking us to the, the tense points to his taking the throne. He's estab- going, about to establish the throne. He's coming back to do that. And in light of that, uh, give, give glory to him. You have the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now I have opened my mind on that. I believe the bride is Christ. I hope we all do. And the making ourselves ready is the judgment seat that takes place after we are brought back to the Father's heart. Now, come, come on does she make herself ready at the judgment seat? Jim, would you explain that? She accepts the judgment of, of the Lord. And thus, she is made ready. And she's accepting that as she puts on the wedding garment that has been woven on her in her hours of pain and problems and persecution, testimony. That garment, that's what she should wear. There's not any thought of rights being put wrong and relationships between saints being mended. Is that out of the picture? I don't think it's in the no. picture here. This is what she has in her testimony. Do you remember Christ spoke, the Lord spoke to the, over, uh, to the, the folk of Laodicea? Buy of me white raiment. That is what is produced by association with Christ in testimony, in true testimony. Not the glossy cloaks of, of, of Laodicea that spoke of wealth and position on earth. But this is what the church has woven during her time of witness for the Lord. And it's graciously granted to her to wear that raiment. Why is that emphasis there? I accept wholly what you're saying about uh, the nature of those garments and her part in the weaving thereof. We're clear, of course, that all those righteous acts are a result of the work of the Spirit of God and what God gave her in her testimony. She has used the time, used the treasure, used used the talent, and there's something produced that will be for His glory and her blessing at the judgment seat. So be gracious of of the great God and, and, and of the land That's right. to recognize what had been wrought in her. That's right. Brother, not wishing to take you back, but the judgment of the great whore we can see in chapter 17 is executed by the ten kings and the beast. Yeah. Yet that isn't final because in chapter 19 her smoke rises up forever and ever. So that beyond a time the dreadful judgment will continue. That includes both the whore and also her last final manifestation in the city. And it seems to me that even during the millennial age, there will be a spot on earth that still marks where God's judgment fell, even in the millennial age. But you can see the the two sides of it, that which relates to time, and then that which will be continued throughout eternity. He's, He's leaving a mark for eternity. It's very, very solemn to think of what is still in store for her. Mm. We should. Yeah. That's perfectly right. It's beautiful to contrast 
the attire of the true bride here and the attire of the harlot in chapter 17. Fine linen, the product of the righteous acts of saints. In contrast to that, you see the whore decked, the word is, and she's gaudy in her appearance, in contrast to the purity of the bride of Christ as we have her here. Any comment, brethren? David? No, that's fine. So, you would like us to make a clear distinction in our mind between the wife of Jehovah and the bride of the Lamb. Of course. Yeah. I, I, thank you for pointing that out. I hadn't emphasized that particularly. The bride of Jehovah, the, the wife of Israel, uh, Israel was as seen as the wife, linked with Jehovah. And uh, she has earned the death penalty by her actions. And yet there will be restoration for her. But distinct from that, here is the bride of Christ that is won in the period of his rejection, betrothed her to himself, and now taken home into the Father's house, the second stage, the marriage ceremony. This is where he presents to himself a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle, mm-hmm. nor any such thing. There the marriage ceremony takes place and readiness for the return to earth with his bride. Would you explain to us, uh, Brother Alan, why it is not the marriage of Jesus, or the marriage of Christ, or even the marriage of the Lord Jesus, it's the marriage of the Lamb that's referred to? Because he is the one and the purposes of God, who shed blood for redemption. His people rejected him first, and they will be brought into redemption fully at a later date. But in the period when the Lamb is rejected on earth, he wins for himself, in redemption Christ, another, this bride, that his preciously, particularly and personally, belongs to him, and he's come for her, and the marriage ceremony now takes place. Anything to add, David? You mentioned, I think in your opening, maybe even just a minute ago, marriage has come. It, it, nearly, it nearly appears as if They've been waiting for this big day for centuries. It's come. That's right. Uh, and the pent-up praises. Uh, would you say in the heart of God, as far as Revelation is concerned, not eternity, the book of Revelation, this day has been in the mind of God from Genesis 2. Well, we left Adam and Eve uh, in the garden to establish marriage. I want you to commend you, Brother Jim, in relation to, and I'm going back slightly, but I think it should be mentioned in a gathering like this. In the Bible, I don't have to teach an audience like this. Israel and the church is always kept distinct and different. Now, you made a statement there, Brother. You called the 24 elders the church in its priestly capacity. Now, there are a lot of people don't believe that. They believe it is Old and New Testament saints. I don't. I agree entirely with you. Because when I come to these 4 and 20 elders, my mind immediately goes back to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 22 through to chapter 24 and I see there there are 24 courses of the priests. So I agree with you, Brother Jim, that this is the church in its priestly capacity. Thank you. And of course, this being the last mention of the church and the living creatures, I think is significant because the bride comes onto the scene now and the 24 elders disappear off the scene. 
Christ comes onto the scene and the four living creatures that to me reflect aspects of creation. The creator now comes onto the scene and they disappear from the scene. One little comment just in, in passing, Brother Jim. The two verbs that are used in verse 7, to be glad and rejoice, very common verbs in our New Testament. I think I'm right in saying the only other time that those two are conjoined is in Matthew 5, verse 12. And that is where the saints are told it will be their lot to be persecuted like the prophets that were before them. So, strangely, the era we're in is one where the, the gladness and joy that we have sometimes is linked with suffering. But the answer to all of that, of course, is in the two that we have here. Lies ahead. And just a practical point, I have wondered sometimes how much I have woven on earth of this garment that will be revealed at the judgment seat and will be worn to the glory of Christ afterwards. I suppose that Dorcas made a valuable contribution full of good works and alms deeds which she did, the righteous acts of the saints. Thank you for pointing out that. It's a plural word. The righteousness as pointing to the righteous acts that come from a righteous standing in Christ. Would it be right to say that the chronology of chapter 19 specifically with regard to the uh, bride having been prepared, arrayed, and now the coming of the Lord in glory, that this would suggest very clearly that anyone who believes in a post-tribulation rapture must be very, very wrong indeed. I think you don't know their Bible. Then you were coming to verse number nine, nine, and he said unto me, that's our judge's conducting angel, write. John is told a number of times to write. Take up that pen, John. Blessed are they that are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now you heard what I said, brethren. Uh, I'm not sure you all agree with me. I'm willing to let you talk. Let you put your side of the case. It seems to me perfectly in place that the ceremony over, the, Christ brings the bride back to her home. And that will be when he comes back to her. He comes with his bride. And you have Matthew 25 in the background. And there's a marriage supper. Same word is used there on earth. So, uh, are you saying, Brother Jim, that the Millennial Kingdom is really a thousand year celebration of the marriage of the Lamb? I wouldn't go so far as that, right. Brother Jack. I would think it'd be a, a major feast as Christ comes back. Because there are certain things to take place uh, before that. We'll see that as we go down the passage. But I think this is a celebration at the entrance to the Millennial Kingdom. Is it the time then when Abraham and others sit down in the kingdom? That's right. I was going to ask the question there that uh, has been partly answered. How long will the marriage supper of the Lamb continue? I couldn't answer that. (laughs) Well then, some other little difficulties in my mind in relation to it being on earth. Thinking of Hebrews chapter 3, where for holy brand partakers of a heavenly calling and then coming over to Second Corinthians chapter 5 if the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved we have a building of God and a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens 
And I had thought that based on that, well, I'll hardly be coming back to earth again. From scripture, can you give us some help on that, please? Let me ask you two questions, Brother Sam. One is this. You believe Christ is coming back to earth? Yes. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Yes. You believe his bride will come with him? Yes, but that will not be their dwelling place. Their no. dwelling place will be eternal in exactly. the heavens. Exactly. Her home is in the city. That will be described. But Christ is bringing her back for a certain introduction to his kingdom glory. And she shares with him the marriage supper. Yes, well, some take it very strongly that the marriage supper of the Lamb will continue the whole millennial period no, of a thousand I'm not years. That couldn't be. Well, I've just refused to accept that from our brother Jack. So I'm excused on that, on that point. I think it's a celebration that Christ sets up on earth and he brings his bride with him. Yes, well, no Our doubt home is still the same. No doubt whatever about that. He's coming and he's coming with all the saints there in Second Thessalonians in chapter 1. That's For right. all that, the dwelling place of the saints of God will be heavenly. Our home is eternal in the heavens and it's that eternal city. Well, thanks for that. Yes, brother. brother Jim, will we have the bride all in glorified bodies sitting down around the festal board with a company that have been saved and that entered the kingdom in their natural bodies. What's the objection? Why not? You think that they'll sit down and eat? I do. In their glorified bodies? You don't think Christ will guide and you with you in the kingdom? You don't think he's doing it, going to do that? It's not a matter of what I think. It's a matter of what we can find clear scripture well, to Christ, tell us. Christ spoke of, the Lord Jesus spoke of eating in the kingdom. I don't see any objection. Uh, but you're limiting that to the kingdom that's manifested during the millennial reign, are you not? That's, but that's the first phase of his kingdom, the millennial reign. He's coming back to earth. He's bringing his bride with him. There's a supper. There's a great feast. And there's both from heaven and earth. I see no objection. Well, my, my personal view is and has been, given this a lot of thought, that when we reach heaven and are in the glorified bodies, that the marriage will take place and there will be a marriage supper, a festival supper, and that that is not linked to the millennial reign. But we must leave that and move on your time. I think I have more scripture behind me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is there, <coughs> even, even it's not that we're following our customs, but for quite a number of years it was customary there for the ceremony to take place in one setting, and then they moved to another setting for the supper. But this is the Jewish background. Mm-hmm. The supper is always a different place from the marriage ceremony. So I have no problem, but I wonder... I'm using language that we use in our ceremonies and settings. Is it possible that there'll be a large number at the celebrations, the feast, but there'll be a top table? I'm inclined to think I'll be at the top table. <laughs> but, uh, some of the, and maybe up a wee bit, but some of these other fellows will just have to get a few buns and bits of steaks down below. The feast will be of such a nature, it will, I believe, encompass both the heavenly side and the earthly side. You've heard me say that. I, I believe it from this scripture. And I don't see anything to contradict it. 
And I believe the bidden ones are those saved during the tribulation and they come to the marriage supper. And some of those parables would have relevance to exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And the feast of fat things in Isaiah 25 would possibly be part of it. Yes. Well, then I think we must move on because I want to get to the last part of the chapter. So, you can understand why John fell at his feet to worship this conducting angel. He said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. To him belongs worship. We are only fellow servants under the same master and you worship him. Uh, for the testimony of Jesus, I would like to ask uh, my brethren for help on this. What is the testimony of Jesus? What does it mean? Is it drawing attention to the prophetic word that points out Christ in all scripture? That, is that the testimony concerning him right from Genesis to Malachi? I've got a wee note here. Revelation is the testimony of him assuming his kingship and kingdom and the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is the purpose the aim of prophecy, the focus, the goal to which all prophecy was tending, the kingship and kingdom of the Lord Jesus. I would, I would agree with that if you put the emphasis on the testimony that Jesus bore. It doesn't say the testimony of Christ. It says the testimony of Jesus. What did he bear? He bore testimony to this. I'm walking these scenes as a man on earth, despised but I'm going to read. The testimony that he bore to the fact that he believed he was coming as king. And he bore that testimony. I base that on the link back to the end of chapter 12 where you have the testimony of Jesus being traced to the tribulation saints who are being persecuted. And they believed the same thing as Jesus that the despised one is going to read. I think that is the spirit of prophecy. The man on the throne. David, have you any comments? I'm comfortable with that. We, we feed our souls in Christ and all the scriptures. But there was that particular strand within scripture that indicated, which the Jew had trouble with, that the, the blessed man that would come would be rejected. And I believe that it is the fact that he bore testimony to that and that in these scenes that are being unfolded in Revelation, saints other than ourselves will also be engaged in recognizing that that one that the world is, has rejected is indeed bound for the throne. That's right. Now, my brethren, if you'd permit me, I will move you to verse 11 and subsequent passages. You've heard my setting out, first ten verses, link back and let's look back to the very close of the tribulation. So in verse 11, we're at this climactic moment. The beast and the false prophet have been successful. And if we are studying this fully, I would take you back to those passages that I believe indicate that Islam is now in the picture. And the armies from the east are moving, according to Revelation chapter 16, and they're moving to Jerusalem. And opposing them are forces that will support the beast and uh, his stand and his position with the false prophet in Israel. 
So two converging forces are meeting at Jerusalem. The Battle of Armageddon, and that's where Psalm 2 comes in, when maybe the last resolution of the United Nations will be. We'll all stop fighting each other. We'll fight him. He's coming back. We'll oppose him. And Satan has done what he ever wanted to do. Gather men under his control. And he has those armies gathered. And they unite against the Christ who's coming back. That is the climactic moment. I judge, identified to the very day. The last day. Marking the close of the tribulation. And the heavens open. And Christ comes forth. This is what we have here. John says, I saw heaven open. And one coming as conqueror. Victor. Now my brother. I was going to ask you, uh, Brother Jim, in relation to your summary there. That, that's fine. Um, and your linkage with Psalm 2. I don't think we can accept anything else than linkage with Psalm 2. But here's my question. The, and I'm thinking of Zechariah 14 in the opening verses there too. All armies gathered against Jerusalem to battle, half of the city taken and so on. And then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. I take that as here. But here's my question. I take it that those armies have gathered together against Jerusalem. That's their primary purpose for being there. Now, from what you've just said, it would seem that maybe they had an awareness that he was coming. I wondered if their primary purpose being against Jerusalem, then there was a switch in focus. When he appears, those who were gathered against Jerusalem will switch. Do you see what I'm getting at? The initial purpose was against Jerusalem. I've said that out, yes. Uh, and then uh, uh, your verse 3 of Psalm 2 the kings set themselves and the rulers take counsel against, together against the Lord and against his anointed I wonder if that happens as the Lord appears but I may be wrong I'm just asking the question it could very well happen like that yeah. I have put it a little bit further back Yes. in the signs coming they read the signs yeah. the sign of the coming of the Son of Man I think that mm-hmm. sign of the coming of the Son of Man is the Son of Man coming himself yes it's true that uh, they see it's just at the moment when he's coming. Yeah. And what I judge would be they suddenly come together yeah. and say, we'll stand together. Yes. And they get behind the beast and the false prophet. Yes. And Satan right. is behind that. Mm-hmm. And they think, man thinks, with satanic power, we can oppose his yeah. return. My, my point is, they weren't primarily there to attack him. Oh, no. They were primarily there against Jerusalem, yes, but then yes. they switch against him. We are going to deal with the beast. Yes. And we're going to deal with Israel yeah. that he supported, as, as he has supported all these years. Mm-hmm. We're going to settle this forever. Thank you very much. And yet, Brother Jim, in, in chapter 16, the demon powers that act are there with the express purpose to bring together for this great day. Yes, right. And I think we need to recognize that that was happening. But I think we need to add that the only do whatsoever that his hand and his will would allow to happen. God permits that. You can read that in chapter 16 as a he gathered them together. You can read that as a singular, linking a Greek singular uh, with a background of the demon. But you can also read it as God himself. Uh, gathering the armies yes. together. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was going to suggest if we have a wedding on heaven, 
we have war on earth. And in this particular part of the chapter, we have the advent of Christ. The armies that are associated with that period. And then we have the authority of Christ and the avenging of Christ upon his enemies. Thank you, Brother Jack. That's very helpful. And we're coming now to the moment when he comes forth. Faithful and true. In righteousness he doth judge and make war. Faithful and true is the description of him uh, to the church at uh, Laodicea. And now it's used of him in glory. So it stresses his humanity. In righteousness he doth judge. A brother has stressed the righteousness. Make war. He's coming this time not as the bearer of salvation to earth, but the judgment on those who have refused that salvation. Mr. Allen, um, we have another rider on a white horse in chapter 6. Yes. And uh, our millennial brethren would tell us that's Christ as well. No. Could you uh, distinguish between the two riders on the white horse? The rider on the white horse in chapter 1 is uh, possibly the personification of deception. It's a white horse. And that white speaks of a claim, but he's a deceiver. And you can fasten the personification of deception into the first beast, the one who becomes the man of sin, the one who is uh, dominating earth, and he a deceiver. He, he goes forth conquering and to conquer, and he goes forth with the bow, so that he's trying to conquer from a distance. This is in contrast, this one is in contrast. There are many contrasts with chapter 6 and this white one on the white horse here he's coming on the white horse which is a sim- symbol a symbol of conquest even the very name of the white horse rider here places him in contrast with the other white horse rider faithful yes. and true the beast ah. made a covenant and broke it That's no right. faithfulness ah. true deception characterized the beast you know lying wonders and so that was the kind of attitude that he had but in contrast to the beast here is one who is faithful and true four things are mentioned of him his eyes are mentioned flaming fire his head many diadems the dragon has seven diadems has ten diadems on the head of the ten kings in association with the beast but here is one who outranks them all. He is the one. It's not the word Stephanus. That's the crown that the white horse rider in chapter 6 has. It's a victor's crown. But here it's a diadem of regal authority. And it's many diadems. All regal authority is centered in Christ. And then you have the mention of his name. And you have, uh, well, his clothes. His clothes. And then his name. A vesture dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. Okay, can I ask you just for, for some general help and it works in this passage. We have no doubt, no doubt whatsoever that this is a literal, personal, public, powerful second coming of the Lord Jesus. Is the horse literal? Is the sword literal coming out of his mouth? Or have we to learn that in passages describing a literal, actual event, there can be symbolic language? 
You're not suggesting there are horses in heaven, is it? <laughs> no, I think you're quite right. We stress the, the symbol is an indication of how he is acting. And I think they're symbolic of the various things. For example, the sword, I don't think, is seen. John sees it. It's literal to him in that sense. But in its application, we're told it's the word that goes out of the mouth. It's the Lord's breath of his mouth. And yet, we have to be careful because there are many that would call themselves commentators on the book of Revelation. They say the sword's symbolic, the horse is symbolic, and the coming symbolic. And this coming is a symbol. If you take the horse to be a symbol and the sword's a symbol, the coming will have to be a symbol. And this is symbolic of the devastating destruction that took place in Jerusalem in AD 70. No, I think you push that too far. I think they do. Uh, Mr. Allen, uh, just a question. Whose blood was this vestment dipped in? I think it must be his enemies. And I'm quoting, I'm thinking of Isaiah 63. I see. Who is this that cometh from Basel? Hmm. Uh, that's, uh, that, that's the scripture uh, that I think is in mind here. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine vat. I have trodden the winepress alone, the people who is none with me. I tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. He's coming as the one to judge. And he's coming as the one who moves. I think these armies are stretched from Jerusalem to the north, up to Megiddo, if you like. But they're stretched right around Jerusalem. And he starts at one end and seems to sweep down. And as he's pierced the jaw, he's one who has acted in judgment before. And he now is acting in the final judgment. This is the very end of the judgment. When the day is closed, millions are dead. And the rebellion is finished. Would you the, point, oh, so sorry. the sprinkling of blood, Brother Jim, would it not depict the Lord Jesus as the mighty conqueror and the veteran warrior of the wars of Jehovah? And here he's coming forth with the diadems of glory since he has conquered. And that allows him to stand in contrast to chapter 6 where we have another white horse and a rider who is seeking to conquer but the one in chapter 19 has already done so, and he's done so as the veteran of God's long, long wars. I think that's what we've set forth, Brother Jim. That's it. That's that's what we've set forth. That he's coming forth to finalize judgment upon sinners. And the the, the dipped in blood indicates this is not the past. So, for example, the passage in Joshua 5, when... Joshua finds one who comes as the captain of the Lord's host, and yet he's one who's worthy of worship, isn't he? That's so right. we can conclude that that was a manifestation, a pre-incarnate manifestation of our blessed Lord. Yeah. Right. Brother Jim, when the beast and the kings of the earth reach their final decision to challenge, they're challenging the Lord Jesus Christ as King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Their hope is of victory to overcome him mm-hmm. and to claim the sovereignty that pertained to him. Now, those responsible here are the beast and the kings of the earth 
and the false prophet is involved because they're all dealt with in judgment. Uh, which person do you think is the leader in this attack, leaving the satanic side out? Which person do you think is the leader in this planned attack to overcome the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and take the throne? The first beast of Revelation 13. Who becomes the first beast of Revelation 13? Would the Antichrist, the instead of Christ, be the person to make the challenge? You take the Antichrist to be the second beast? No, 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 no. My question is would the Antichrist, the instead of Christ, not be the person who would make the challenge against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The first beast in Revelation 13 is spoken of as anti-God. And if we use the word anti-Christ, alright, I let you apply it to the first beast as summing up all that is against Christ. But when you come to the second beast, you've got to use the word anti-Christ, and he is the anti-Christ, in a different way, the replacement Christ as deals with the nation. And that replacement Christ is the one who claims not only prophecy, he's a false prophet, but he's a king of fierce countenance. He's prophet, priest and king in Israel. And he's a supporter of this man who heads up opposition to Christ. So if we take what you were referring to in Psalm 2, it is against Christ, but it's against the Lord. Uh-huh. and his anointed so they're opposed to God and, like son. and his son so that's the two here correspond that's to that that's what I feel yeah. it's an amazing thing to think that puny men feel that they can pit themselves against the almighty seeing him come in such manifested glory and in such power and yet there's solidarity in their part to oppose him no wonder Psalm 2 says he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh the Lord shall have them in derision. They think that because they have satanic power on their side, and they have, because the miracles of the second beast are contributed to the deception of mankind, and they have followed him. And it's the armies here. Notice not the people. It's the armies. It's the representative forces of the nations that are being mustered to this particular place. And here's the Lord coming forth now. We have his names, faithful and true, we have the name uh, he himself, name written that no man knoweth but he himself, as indicating that there are resources in deity that are alone belong to Christ. We can see them and value them, but there are resources that belong to Christ, belong to God, that Christ alone is aware of, a name written. The name brings power uh, of a God. And it's this name that enfolds special power that he is manifesting as he comes forth. And then you have the Word of God. When he came the first time, John identified him as the Word. And now he identifies him as the Word. First in blessing, now in judgment. And he's coming forth. And you can see the three pictures in verse number 15. There's a picture of the warrior with the sharp sword. And there's a shepherd with the rod of iron. And there is the, the farmer who treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And that goes back to chapter 14.
just one thing. In verse 12, uh, reference is made to crowns. I think it's important to point out uh, that there are two crowns in the New, Te- New Testament. There is the, the, victor's, the victor's crown, the Stephanos, which is given to the faithful saints at the judgment seat of Christ. But here is a different word. It's the diadem, which was not a crown as we would understand it, but a ribbon with the name of the kingdom that was conquered by the man that wore this diadem. It was not a crown, it was uh, a declaration of the um, kingdoms which he had conquered. That's right. Thank you very much. Just in connection with that, these these different figures are taken from a Roman triumph. And when the conquering Caesar came back from battle, he had a triumphal procession of the white horse, he carried these diadems on his brow of the kings that he had conquered in the battle that was behind him and he had his own titles inscribed on his clothes and on great banner. The difference here is this king has the badges of triumph before the battle happens. They're secure for him. The victory is so certain he wears the badges of triumph before he even goes to battle. That's right. Could, could I ask a question about a phrase that we've maybe slipped over? The armies which were in heaven. Who comprises the armies in heaven? Now, if you, you tell me the church is involved, my second question is, how did the church get to heaven in order to emerge from heaven? And I'm coming back to a point that our brother Mr. Curry made. There must be a pre-tribulation rapture. There must be the rapture of the saints to get them to heaven before they can emerge from heaven as the armies that are in heaven. Would that be correct? Well, we have settled this a long time ago, Brother Jack, haven't we? Was I sleeping <laughs> at that point? <laughs> I think you must have dozed off there. <laughs> <laughs> we were, at the end of chapter 3, we decided that the church has been taken away. I'm happy with that, but I do want you to emphasise it, you yeah. see, because... As you know, there's a lot of teaching these days which suggests that the people of God of this age will go through the tribulation. I want you to tell us how we get to heaven before we can come back from heaven. Because the Lord takes us there. At the rapture. At the rapture. Yeah. When he takes us home and then there's the judgment seat and the marriage ceremony and by that time you're ready to come back with him. Sorry, sorry, I'm just going to ask you on that and you can't go away into other chapters. Would one of the strongest texts, and there are a number of texts, Thessalonians and so on, one of the strongest texts for the removal of saints before the tribulation be in this book, in chapter 3? Behold, I come quickly. And keep thee from. Mm-hmm. I believe so. Keep yeah. thee from, not just the tribulation, but keep thee from the R. Mm-hmm. He'll not take them out of it, but he'll keep right. them from it. That's great. Well, that's in I'll contrast to the words of Jeremiah in connection with Israel. You know, mm-hmm. speaking, they, they'll be saved out of it. But we are kept from the hour. That's right. We'll never see it. A, a simple point, Mr. Stan, but I think one that's worth making, particularly for, for younger saints. You may lay great emphasis on the judgment of Babylon. Yeah. The scripture is clear at the end of chapter 18 God avenges you of her. That's right. But when we're here and we're dealing with the nations and the eruption of rebellion in the nations, it's not God who's said to deal with it but it is this mighty conqueror. And that kind of distinction might help a, a younger saint maybe to grasp uh, why we find these things not happening together, but different kinds of issues, and they're dealt with separately and at different times. God has com- committed all judgment mm-hmm. onto the Son. Mm-hmm. 
I think all sessional judgment and the execution of judgment as here. So, whether it's one or the other, it's in his hand. So could Brother I Jim, oh, sorry. Uh, could I ask you, Brother Jim, uh, could you explain the timetable of the Supper of the Great God? Does it take place uh, at his coming, as you're speaking about at the moment? And if this is so, would that in any way clash with the marriage supper of the Lamb, which you said would take place at the same time? I'm sorry, I didn't get the first bit of your question. Give me the timetable of the supper of the great God. I assume it takes place when the Lord comes back in manifestation at this point. But you also said that the marriage supper of the Lamb took place at the same time. Would there be two suppers running alongside each other? No, no. No, there won't. Uh, the timetable, in my judgment, is fairly simple. The Lord comes first, the Mount of all. This is what's before us here. And he destroys the enemy. Then uh, certain events have to come in. He is to go to Jerusalem to claim the crown. Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O you gates. So there is the claiming of the crown. Then there is the judgment of the living people. When all, all peoples, not nations, all peoples are gathered to that judgment of the living nations. At some point has to come in the resurrection of Old Testament saints and the saints who have died in the tribulation. These events have, been, have to be put together at that particular point. Then comes the marriage supper of the Lamb when these matters have been settled and the kingdom is being inaugurated. Then comes that. Even, even with us, after the marriage ceremony, there can be quite a number of events have to take place before you get a bite to eat. <laughs> rather painful things too. Jim, yes. brother, brother Al, your re-mention of the marriage supper of the Lamb <coughs> gives me an opportunity to ask you something that I forgot on my feet. The marriage supper of the Lamb. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. And then there are the guests, the friends of the bridegroom. If the marriage supper of the Lamb commences in heaven, the bride of Christ the church, and the friends of the bridegroom, the Old Testament saints, would you have any objection to it commencing in heaven? Yes, I would. Oh. Because I think it will come on earth and the invited guests of earth and then the, the friends of the bridegroom what's to prevent them coming? Oh yes, your, your objection is based you've already told me there on what you think if someone thought differently what would you say to them? So well, many so there are so many that do not believe that line of teaching Oh, I'm perfectly happy uh, I'm not being accused of heresy or any such thing You're not happy that they don't believe it I'd be happier if they believed what I believe. Yes. Well, my personal judgment is that the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place with the bride and with the friends of the bridegroom, the Old Testament saints. Oh, all right, really. And I hear that, some more or less saying, Amen. I'm not the only one that believes that. Well, I leave you to your belief. Could, could I, I stick to Scripture. Could, could I move? <laughs> Can I maybe move on? Yes, do, the, do the, please. And, and this is just general, you know, with regard to the Lord coming and subjugating these people. Yeah. Now, in the world today, in the world of the, the charismatic world, let's call it, 
there is a doctrine that the gospel will gradually capture the hearts of everyone in the world and that the Lord Jesus will ultimately rule in the world as a consequence of the preaching of the gospel and eventually everyone submitting. Now, our young people will encounter that as they go to colleges and universities. You know, I think it has to be stressed that it's neither biblical nor is it true to life. The world is not pushing, the, the gospel is not pushing back the frontiers of evil in the world today. It's not. He will subjugate the world, but by military power as we have it here. I think that's good. And we point out that uh, that post-tribulation teaching that you're talking about uh, is being dis- discredited by two world wars and the present moral climate. The gospel is not making progress as these people would, prof- would, would protest that it is yeah. on bringing men into, into subjection. Christ will bring them into subjection in the kingdom. Now, brethren, I must ask you, please, as time moves on, he is seen in verse 15 was a warrior with a sword to smite the nations. That's Psalm 110. And then he shall rule them and uh, uh, the extended meaning of the word here should be used, shall smite them with a rod of iron because he's coming as a shepherd and his sheep are with him but there's enemies and he's dealing with those enemies. And then the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, word piled upon word to show what this means as the Lord tramples the winepress and chapter 14 speaks of the blood being, uh, being sprinkled or splashed to the horse bridles in chapter 14 over 200 miles. The people that said, His blood be on us, on us and on our children, their land will be stained with blood. At this terrible moment, he hath on his vesture and on his star, and Amrit, King of Kings, King of all who claim sovereignty, Lord of all who claim Lordship. This same title is in chapter 17 in connection with the destruction of Babylon. But it's the other way round. It's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. It's the same title as First Timothy chapter 6. Blessed and only potentate who shall show who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Christ is shown, demonstrated to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, brethren, anything you want to say on this? Please come in. That's the, sovereign, the arrival of the sovereign. We've talked quite a little bit about this. Now we come to verse 17. And you're coming to these two verses that set forth the announcement of the sovereign. I saw an angel standing in the sun. And you say, how would that be? Uh, certainly the glory of that angel must outshine the sun. But maybe this is that special day that Zachariah speaks of. Mm. That will be dulled by the darkness that's gathering around the nation. And in that very darkness, this, the angel standing against the sun is summoning the fowls of, of the air in the midst of heaven. Come gather yourselves together unto the supper. We have had the marriage supper. Now here's the supper of a great God. And what is it? It's flesh of captains, the plural is there, fleshes of captains, fleshes of mighty men, fleshes of horses, of them that sit on them. Five times you get the word fleshes of all men, both free and 
37 there's another eating of the flesh and so on and the burying of the weapons is that another incident or is that the same incident as we have here in chapter 19 no I think the uh, repetition of the same expressions is taking uh, two different events Ezekiel 38 and 39 I judge is the invasion of Israel from the north and that invasion of Israel is destroyed. It must take place when Israel has signed the false covenant of peace. I judge it happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. The midpoint of Daniel's 70th week happens just before the midpoint. And that army, I would suggest, maybe led by Iran, backed by Russia, and Libya is mentioned, and Sudan is mentioned, Strange that these nations have come to the fore now. After the church is gone, there could well be a movement from the north against Israel. And that allows God to step in and destroy that army. And there will be the same kind of summons made because it takes such a long time, seven months, to bury the dead. And there you have destruction from God himself as, as he destroys that armor but that allows the beast to move to his climactic place and move into the temple and call himself God but that's in the midpoint of the week this is at the end of the week this is a separate occasion I just want to ask you brother Jim oh sorry yeah I was going to ask you concerning the chronology here um, when he comes in this manifestation there's a question I, I, I'm not sure but that's why I'm asking you the, the question does he then does his feet then touch the Mount of Olives he went up from the mountain does he, he come straight back to the mountain or do we have this battle of Armageddon and then he goes to the mountain I'm just wondering at what stage the mountain figures in it and then at what stage um, he goes up to the holy hill and thinking of Psalm 24 and so on? In answer to your question directly, Robin, yes. Brother Robin, I had thought that his first act was his feet to touch the Mount of Olives. And that mountain divided. As that happened, then the judgment fell. Almost simultaneously. If you look at the Daniel 12, there, beyond the 1260 days, marked by the setting up of abomination of desolation in the holy place. That's the three and a half years to the end of the week. After that, there's one period of 30 days, then a second period of 75 days. Blessed are they that come to these stages. They incorporate the stages of the setting up of the kingdom, of the things that we have mentioned already, the things to happen after his feet stand on the Mount of Olives. But I would think the first event is his standing on the Mount of all. It's interesting that there are two notable survivors of Armageddon, the beast and the false prophet, and they are cast alive into the lake of fire. 
I judge that this is the first time that the lake of fire opens her mouth to receive men. And then, possibly, Matthew 25, the goats. And for the second time, the lake of fire opens her mouth to receive men. And then we'll come to Revelation chapter 20 this evening. Two men were taken to heaven without dying. Two men will be put into the lake of fire without dying. Thank you, Jack. I think that's helpful. May I ask you, Jack, have you any idea why these men are banished directly to the lake of fire? Why do they not stand at the great white throne? I couldn't answer that. I don't think we've got an answer in, in black and white, but maybe there's a suggestion. Any of you, brethren, suggestion? Their, their outright rebellion against the Lord is so public mm-hmm. and so brazen and bold and universal that it won't require a public day of review for it. No, that's that's what I was going to say. It's so satanically controlled that they are banished directly. Nearly like the people that went down alive into the pit. That's right. In in the book of Numbers. It was was obvious they were real rebels. Satan himself doesn't need any judgment. Brother, I'm thinking that the great white throne, those that will be there are those who have died and been raised in the second resurrection the resurrection or damnation. But if we go back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, the sheep and the goats, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, evidently without dying. Yes. I'm just thinking what you said. Yes, Yes, so that at the great white throne, it'll be those who have died and were raised again. That's right. Whether us will go to the lake of fire without going through physical death. Yes. These people here around Jerusalem, they physically die. They will stand at the great white throne, those who have gone into death. One other thing that was on my mind, what about the burial of all of those armies, the multitudes of them? How are they disposed of? Well, now, that will be a problem for them. <laughs> that it won't be a problem for us, for us. <laughs> we'll be in the glory. Mm-hmm. It will be a tremendous problem. Will they need burial? Is the idea of the great supper of God not that the, the fowls of the air are going to devour the flesh? Remove all traces of it. Well, that could be an answer. No question. Because, brethren, there must be. The, the army on the move in Revelation chapter 9 is 200 million. I have thought in my mind 200 million. There's no country on earth except China could be put such a a number of men under order. Now opposing them, if you even consider a parallel force, maybe 200 million. So around Jerusalem, maybe that those millions of people and suddenly to be destroyed. It's absolutely, you can hardly take it in as we think of it. And then the fowls of the air. But notice please, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies that's verse 19 and verse 20 the beast was taken and with him the false prophet was seen suddenly this army is left without leader they look to their headquarters and the leaders of God they've been seized and they're banished to the lake of fire the beast was taken and they cast a light into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Five times, I think, it's mentioned in the book. The remnant were slain with the sword of him, set upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, 
and all the fathers were filled with their slain. Final comments, brothers. So it's only it's only the the king here has any armor. The, the, there's none of the armies have any weaponry with them. Is that right? Oh yes, yes. Oh, the armies that followed Christ. Oh, Christ. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Yes, the armies. Yes. Yeah. Oh no, they don't need any. No, <laughs> his sword will do. That's right. Yeah. His sword is enough to deal with all the enemy. Yeah. And as I said already, they might have their missiles lined up, their tanks ready, all the paraphernalia, a machinery of art, focused on this, support for the beast and the false prophet, and suddenly destruction. And the Lord's feet stand on the mind of all. And death. Hmm. Our brother Gilliland will take us on in the next Bible reading into what happens next as we move through. Mm-hmm. God bless his word. Mm-hmm. Let us pray. Our God and Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with reverence and godly fear, we bow before Thee and we thank Thee for salvation. We thank Thee that Thou didst cross life's pathway and bring us to that moment when, burdened with guilt and grief and shame, to Jesus' cross I trembling came. Pardon I found in peace with God through Jesus' rich atoning blood. Thou hast kept us. Thou hast preserved us along the pathway of life. And now we're looking upward and homeward and soon we shall see our Lord. We'll see him first, our Father, when he himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of archangel and trump of God. Dead in Christ shall rise first. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him, with them in the church, for a meeting with the Lord in the air. Then to be with him. Then to share his triumph as he returns to earth. We thank thee for such a prospect and to share his presence throughout ages and then into eternity itself. We are overwhelmed as we think of thy grace thy greatness and thy glory. Let thy blessing rest upon the company today. We thank you for health and the discussion on the word. We pray to bless it to all our hearts that we might have our eyes lifted off the things of earth and fastened upon the things that lie ahead. Do remember us each and the families we represent with all their trials, with all their tears, with all their troubles. May they be comforted and blessed today. Now take our thanks for the food that has been prepared and the love and the care that lies behind it. We thank thee for it. We ask blessing upon those who have prepared it and we ask a time of fellowship as we share together in the material things and bring us up again with an understanding a further understanding in the things divine that thou art placing before us. So we give thanks to thee and ask blessing in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
Awake and sing the song.